For me, there was no better training ground than teaching and leading in New York City as a classroom teacher, dean of discipline, and assistant principal. The learning curve was very high, and opportunities to learn from mistakes were many. In the beginning, it was a good thing that the joys of teaching far outweighed the innumerable challenges with classroom management. I look back, and like childbirth, I had almost forgotten the pain of not knowing how to handle disruptive and disturbing behaviors in the classroom and in the hallways. In time, I learned a few techniques that worked better than they had in my first few years. Some of the techniques were intuitive, while others were learned from hard and fast errors. My interest in sharing what I have learned came later as I picked up some ideas in graduate school, in professional development, from fellow deans of discipline, and later in the Alternatives to Violence program, AVP, as a restorative justice facilitator. I think some history is needed to fill in the gaps. I promise to keep it brief. I observed that the best attempts to keep order in the classroom in the early 90s up into the mid-2000s were based on repeating school rules and issuing consequences. These methods work well for most students, but not for those who frequent the dean's office. In theory, this should cause students to reflect upon their misdeeds. If only there was a connection between the misdeeds and the consequences, then it would be a perfect system. I witnessed stringent programs, such as the Zero Tolerance Movement, where students would barely receive a warning before being marched out of class and later sent home on a three-day hiatus. There were lesser versions of traditional discipline known as progressive discipline. These were the clear-cut versions of the three strikes you're out rule. This form of discipline, where students would be reprimanded by the dean or spoken to by the counselor, resulted in the same cycle over and over again. The first time, there would be a first warning. If the same behavior continued, the dean's office would double as a holding room. The students who still violated the rules would be sent to an in-house room, more poetically referred to in the early 2000s as the reflection room, and I'll get to that in just a minute. I observed in-house suspension rooms where little instruction was offered to students. Please do not take offense if you or someone that you know has covered the in-house rooms. For those of you who are not familiar with the atmosphere, this is what you might see. The in-house room is off the beaten track with crummy desks that are arranged in straight row, often broken, graffitied, or full of gum. Students are sitting with others who are also suspended for the day. There are packets of work to complete which are comprised of less than engaging activities for students to finish up most of the time, there is doubt that the work is even graded. Box lunches are brought in for students, and sometimes the students are just sent home at the half-day mark. Now, don't get me wrong. In rare cases, there are alternative suspension rooms where teachers and counselors engage in therapeutic processes and creative instruction. One of my friends ran such a room. 
but it is far more common to see a room with haphazard instruction and a strong teacher presence of a guy who may serve as a teacher by day or bouncer by night. Not to be sexist, could be a woman too. Although less common, sometimes students would be sent to detention during lunch or the dreaded after-school detention. Although this form of school discipline doesn't necessarily take students out of class, it is far too imperfect for our system, at least the one I worked in. Students would mostly be unable to attend after-school detention. Some would have good excuses, while others had real situations that they had to handle, such as taking the yellow bus. This would mean that the coordinator of special education would have to call the bus company, and you know they have to call them way in advance. Some students would simply decline to show up. They would decline the invitation. In some schools, fewer steps were taken before simply benching a student who violated the rules or engaged in rule breaking. Those students who were not motivated by these consequences or punishment, indeed, they were the toughest customers. And over the years, I've seen tough approaches for those students. And I've also seen some softer ones. I've observed some advances in school discipline in some cases and others where you simply were backsliding. There were programs such as conflict mediation, peer mediation, and advisory classes. Those helped a great deal. And I've thought about those programs when I started to comprise my thoughts about uh, taking notes for this book. In laying the groundwork, I had to honestly assess which programs would work and which leave a lot to be desired. First of all, there are some school discipline programs that are simply confusing to students. Students were presented with long lists of rules that change frequently or without warning. This always results in poor outcomes. I think about what makes a program successful, and I know that there are a few things that those programs have in common. First of all, those programs are based on common values for all the stakeholders. There's a sense of consistency and there's open communication. There's clarity with the students and their families. In models where preventative and restorative approaches are used, the work is done on the front end rather than the back end. The idea is that once a situation escalates and a student is in the throes of emotions, it is already too late. Preventative measures are designed to de-escalate, whereas reactive stances only make things worse. When I started writing this manuscript, I wanted to share ways that were positive, instructive, and inclusive for school discipline. I wanted to share ways that I could incorporate them into school settings that are moving toward inclusion. I also wrote this book because I feel that there is a strong message that I would like to share. I believe strongly that preventative discipline is the most important component of discipline. Within the scope of my writings, there's a detailed explanation of different pathways to preventative discipline and how we can improve overall school tone, climate, and culture. Now let me talk about teachers for a minute. 
There is no reason for teachers to white-knuckle their way through the day. Those good people dedicated to the art of teaching need information and support. They need more of this and less criticism to make changes to their school environment and their learning communities. When teachers are annoyed, fed up, and stressed out, we all know it's difficult to teach. Relief also comes with the feeling of competence and being able to proactively prevent misbehavior. Let's face it, when misbehaviors arise too often, teachers and support staff spend precious prep time, lunch time, and time at home fretting about classroom management problems. Collegial discussions fall by the wayside as time is spent gathering data on students, talking incessantly about the misbehavior of one student or another, and simply having to talk through issues just to relieve some of the stress. It is unfortunate when collegial discussions turn to cries for help instead of on instructional improvement. The personal time and effort spent on classroom management and school-wide discipline sometimes far outweighs the time spent on curriculum assessment and lesson planning. Teachers need more and decidedly so. They need methods to address unhealthy patterns of behavior. Now while we're at it, let's give teachers a hand. Let's give them a round of applause. All faculty members can benefit from the practical applications of one practice or another that will change the school learning community. There is a need for sustainable approaches that are designed to not only benefit students but lessen the tension in the learning environment. There is a need for school leaders to feel that teachers can be included in the disciplinary process. School leaders need to offer teachers a menu of choices and options. When practices yield good results, teachers can feel free to share them with one another. Share about how they achieve success, and that's less work for leadership. What works? Practices that can be replicated year after year. So in summary, the old school style discipline that some still cling to may work with some students. Who does it work with? Usually those who are naturally compliant and let's think about what that really means. Does it really fit the needs of today's classroom. I hope you found this information useful and I'm now going to speak a little bit more about restorative practices.